Welcome back to the Eater Upsell. My name is Daniel Janine. I am a producer here at Eater, and I am joined by the big boss, Eater's editor-in-chief, Amanda Clute. Uh, every month on our Food Stories episode, we recount, break down, and discuss our favorite, the biggest, the most important food stories from the previous month, this month, of course, being June. We go through them as quick as we can and then separate them with a little ding like this. Up first, this is a huge story about Ken Friedman, who is one of New York's biggest restaurateurs and with his chef partner, April Bloomfield, created the Spotted Pig, the Breslin, and a couple other of New York's most famous, iconic restaurants. Amanda, what happened? So back in December, a big story came out in the New York Times accusing Ken Friedman of sexual harassment. Multiple women at the Spotted Pig alleged that he groped them, he kissed them against their will, all these other terrible things. He had a kind of weak apology, and then that's the last we heard from him. Did Um, he have a weak apology? He had an apology that basically said, I apologize for my actions, but without really going into it and being like slightly defensive. Like saying, he said... Some incidents were not as described, but context and content are not today's discussion. I apologize now publicly for my actions. Anyway, so that happened. Right. There's some there's some stuff that they didn't quite get right, but we're not going to talk we're about that We're not going to talk about that right now, how wrong they are. I'm just going to say I'm sorry. They're very wrong. They're wrong. We can admit But that, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then... Five or six months later, we find out that April Bloomfield and Ken Friedman are splitting up their empire. He keeps the spotted pig. Uh, she kept, I believe, the Breslin and the John Dory, Hearth and Hound and Tosca. Mm-hmm. And then their hotel taco place is being run by somebody else, Alex Dupac. And then it came out that Gabrielle Hamilton and her wife, Ashley Merriman, the owners and chefs of beloved East Village restaurant Prune, were partnering with Ken to take over the Spotted Pig. So Ken Friedman won last week. This Gabrielle Hamilton stepping up to bat, being like, he he screwed up, but we think we can fix him. Do you want to say, for people who don't know, what the reaction was across like yeah. social media and in the press? I mean, across, across social media, the, the reaction was like, one of my heroes has crushed my soul. Yeah, universal like shock and horror. Yeah. It seemed like everyone I saw was just like, "Oh my god. This person that I that I looked up to, you know, is no longer no longer a hero yeah. of mine like, at all." No one seemed to be on team Hamilton/Merriman in this. Except Anne Quantrano, strangely enough. She's this Atlanta chef, really well respected. She was quoted in the original New York Times article about Gabrielle taking over the restaurant, saying that um, it's like the worst, the worst quote. Sometimes you have to be in bed with the devil to control him. Which is basically what they're saying as well. I know, but like, don't make a metaphor about sex because Ooh. that's fucking weird when you're talking about teaming up with a sexual alleged yeah. sexual harasser. So, what do you think? I mean, my take is that um, it wasn't just that they made this decision; it's that they made this decision, and then their. Um, commentary about it was so wild yeah. that it's hard to get on their side. So even if you're trying to be generous, they kept saying in the press, they were defending it by saying, like, we party like Ken parties. We just don't break the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, they compared 
They said the people who were going after Ken or who were angry at Ken shared a bloodlust. They compared him not making money off the spotted pig as capital punishment. There was a lot of things they could have done differently to smooth this over, and they did not do and, those things. And you've said, like, what? how would you do it? You would just say... Well, I think there there was an argument they could have made. They could have been like, hey, listen, I know this is unpopular and you right. guys don't get it, but the Spotted Pig is a really popular restaurant. It's going to make money. He's going to be making money anyway. Give me a cut of this money. I'm a deserving lady. I'm going to go in there, fix the culture, make bank for myself because it's a hard, it's hard for me to make a ton of money. I have this one little restaurant. And, like, give me a break. Yeah. Um, and I think people could have – Kind of understood that. Like, okay, this is a financial thing. Women have trouble in the industry making money. She's going to fix the culture, make some money. Or she could have been like, we're friends with Ken, which they are. And he's so sorry. And we've talked to the victims about this. Like, this is a reconciliation tour we're going to do. And it's all about trying to find the pathway towards forgiveness and kind of emphasizing that element of the story. And that wasn't discussed at all. Like, there was no... He needed to come out and talk more about what he did wrong and, like, really own it before I think you can move to the forgiveness phase. And they want to jump, like, right to that. Or, yeah. or some, something has to happen first before you can go in and be like, hey, it's fine. <laughs> Let's all just start making money again. Like, his punishment is over. It's like he's, he should be released from Me Too jail now, even though he hasn't paid really his time to society. Right. He got out of Me Too jail so much faster than everyone else. No one is... Yeah, without doing anything. Well, that's the concern about all these men, is that six months in, everyone's like, okay, can I go back to work now? Like, Charlie Rose, like, can I get my show back now? I don't know if there's much else to say about it. No, no, I mean, we'll see what happens when they take it over. All right, Dan, I have a story. It involves the FDA. Uh, In New York City... New York City is no longer allowing activated charcoal to be used as an ingredient in food. Ah, oh, I forgot about this one. <laughs> it's a good one, right? It's my favorite story of the month. Yeah. So for those of you who do not know, a lot of trendy restaurants around the country and probably beyond use activated charcoal in their foods because it because Instagram, basically. Like I think they have There are multiple reasons for this. Dan can explain the um hoaxy health benefits but it turns your food black and then it looks great on instagram so you'll see it in ice cream coffees all kinds of stuff do you want to explain the um fake health benefits sure i mean like a lot of things that pop up in the kookier corners of the health world uh and then they find themselves in the mainstream. Like there is real benefits. Mm -hmm. I mean, there may be real benefits to to, to charcoal. Mm -hmm. So like. Such as. (laughs) So what they say charcoal does is that it acts like a sponge and will detoxify your stomach. Which your stomach needs because why? Well, because you have so many toxins. Oh, okay. Yeah, duh. (laughs) Right. It's not like the body is a perfect machine that detoxifies itself. The thing is with charcoal that's so crazy is it, it started popping up. I first started seeing it in other things at trendy juice places. Mm-hmm. Um, one called Juice Generation had had like a juice called Super Greens or something, Super Duper Greens, which is just a bunch of vegetables. And then maybe five years ago, six years ago, they offered a slightly more expens- uh, expensive version called Activated Super Greens. Mm. And that was Super Duper Greens with charcoal. The reason that this is so dumb, and this is something I've been wanting to vent about for a little bit, is that if you accept uh, Kooky Corner... You know, the 
the crazy podcasty health nuts mm-hmm. explanation of of why charcoal is great for you, being that it is this detoxifying sponge. Um, they will also tell you never, ever, ever, ever take charcoal with any other supplements, especially prescription stuff, because it will gobble that stuff too. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, it sucks. So, like, there are people who say that the best, one of the best hangover cures is burning toast. This is before we could get all the fancy charcoal, like before they started selling it. Burning toast, scraping off the black, and just taking that because that, yeah, that acts as a sponge and will start sopping up the toxins um, from the alcohol. So the idea that you would put charcoal in with this thing that is supposed to be a nutrient bomb is like here is the nutrient bomb and then here is a sponge that's going to suck it all up and just send it straight through your intestines <laughs> without giving you any opportunity to absorb so it. So it actually makes more sense in ice cream. So it does. It actually makes more sense in stuff that is bad for you. So a lot of people will use it before they eat junk food, mm, you know, like mm-hmm. put a nice bed down of that. <laughs> yeah. A yeah, black God. bed. The amount of things people could be doing if they weren't spending their time thinking about this stuff. Gotta say, you uh, you rifle off eight or something <laughs> pills before a, before a nice greasy meal, and I think you'd feel a lot better two hours later. Um, if 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 all right, I, we're gonna dedicate a podcast to me trying out all of Dan's <laughs> pseudoscience. <laughs> anyway, so so, but why Amanda did New York ban it? Why did they? What did they okay. say? Well, New York Health Department says you can't serve food with activated charcoal in it because it's prohibited by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration as a food additive or food coloring agent. Uh, But the FDA says that it currently has no regulation on activated charcoal as a food additive or coloring additive as an ingredient to be added to food. So this is like a weird New York City-only interpretation of some sort of FDA rule. But like no other city or state is doing this. And the FDA seems to not give a shit. So it's just funny. I feel like someone at the health department is just trolling like Nick Morgenstern and getting him to throw out $3,000 worth of product in one day. So Nick Morgenstern is one of New York's kind of most famous ice cream makers. And yeah, the story is he threw out $3,000 worth of his very famous charcoal ice cream. Black ice cream, yeah. Yeah. You know what? I think that this is another case of like the media loves this because the media hates people that love charcoal. Um, yeah, I mean the media meaning like me. Yeah, yeah, meeting you. Like I don't yeah. know if this story Amanda really went, went wide. <laughs> I right. just find it so amusing. If this was anything else, like if they had banned anything else, uh, people might have gone crazy. They just people love. I this. hope they ban like the New York Museum of Ice Cream next. Speaking of. (laughs) Oh, you have a story? Is this a good segue? Oh, my God. Are we going to segue this one? Let's do it. Speaking of bannings, slap on the wrists, etc., the Museum of Ice Cream has been deemed an environmental hazard and fined by the city of Miami Beach. Oh. Did you hear about this? Well, they were talking about this a long time ago. Is this new? This is new. Oh, that they actually went through the fine. They actually did. So, um... No, they've been fined on multiple occasions, uh, but the, but they fines they reversed the fines after they took steps. What is going on here is the so first of all, the Museum of Ice Cream is the stupidest thing in the world. We should note that museum is in air quotes here because it is not a museum; it is an activation. Right. So it is a bunch of really pretty rooms with ice cream themed ice cream themed visuals. Instagram experience that is that are meant to be like. Yeah, good for Instagram. Mm-hmm. Good for you to take pictures and boomerangs yeah. for Instagram. The most popular of these 
is the sprinkle pit, which is a big ball pit style thing that is filled with not real sprinkles because they would melt, but tiny little plastic sprinkles. The reason they're getting fined by the city of Miami Beach is that people are dragging a lot of these plastic sprinkles out (laughs) into the street. They're getting into the sewers and they are clogging up their waterways. They should make them wear those little um, booties over their shoes. That's what they should do. It's not just the shoes. It's all of the clothes. Oh, because they get into the pit. They get in everywhere. like in all the crevices. Can you imagine... I mean, not to get grabbed. You like take a shower. Yeah, I'm sure you pull them out of crevices. Sprinkles. Ugh. Just like in your ears and stuff. In your ears, like <laughs> all over. I mean, what are people doing in that pit? Well, that but, but, but they're tiny little things. Right. The pit is gross to begin with. I am obsessed yeah. with uh, someone I would love to talk to. The the founder of the Museum of Ice Cream. I think she's she's like 26. She's totally in on the game. She gets it. She's into just making. She she's. I think she, the story is she quit her job a while ago to just make a bunch of like IRL Instagram stuff, mm-hmm. and she's killing it. There's like a Museum of Ice Cream has done. There's like five of them, right? Yeah, and done millions in of tickets. Course. Yeah, it's thirty five dollars. Thirty eight. Thirty eight dollars. Yeah. it's twenty dollars to go to the Met, <laughs> which is an They're incredible. Not even real sprinkles. It's an incredible museum curated by people with master's degrees. This is. A bunch of rooms that have neon colors in them. Yeah. $38. Changing what we see of as a master. You know, uh, she is a business master. This yeah, woman. yeah, she's she's a genius. The thing is, you can't you can't do a boomerang with a Picasso, you know? You could. But you couldn't move the Picasso. All these things are pick up and touch. And we, like, I mean, we shouldn't be comparing. It shouldn't be called a museum. Okay. That's not fair. Did I ever tell you when I first started I had this idea for a stunt that we could do? Uh-huh. Where we set up a giant... IRL experience right next to the Museum of Ice Cream called the Museum of Ass Cream that was just like a history of like Preparation H and all the different <laughs> ways that idea. people cure hemorrhoids. You should do it. You should get Preparation H to sponsor it. Should we do it? I mean, we should not do it. We Eater should do it? We, Imagine the ball pit just filled with the little vials of Preparation H. Yeah, no, Eater should not do it, but Preparation H should do it. and you With should. Amanda and Dan. Should, yeah, the upsell can do it. Okay. <laughs> All right, get at us, uh, Preparation H. We want to do the Museum of Ass Cream. Well, I, there are other ass creams, too, we could approach. All right, you know, any in, ass in cream. Case, in case they're not into it, because they're a little bigger. Like, we could get some upstart ass cream. <laughs> if you're an upstart ass cream, <laughs> Listen hit to us the show. up. Upsellateater.com. We want to do a museum. We're in doing air a quotes. museum. Air quotes of ass cream. Okay, back on the show, our pop culture editor, uh, Greg Morbido, is going to talk to us a little bit about. You know what what's gone on in the in the in the three weeks since since Anthony Bourdain has uh, has passed away. Yeah, uh, this is the biggest person in food media, as far as I'm concerned. I think that since he passed away, Anthony Bourdain, three almost four weeks ago, it's really become clear that this is like a huge, like a legend, like a pop culture legend that is no longer with us. I think people are reacting to his passing in the same way that. In a broad cultural sense, like people reacted to when David Bowie died or when Prince died, somebody mm-hmm. that people had like a really close connection to. And I think that a lot of people felt like they took his his work for granted a little bit. He was always there. He was like very prolific. Yeah. Are you seeing reactions from people that you that you never would have expected to be public about this kind of thing? Completely. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I've had like just a lot of conversations in 
cabs and really anytime I'm at any sort of social function and talking about Eater, people inevitably want to talk about Anthony Bourdain. And it really just blows my mind how everyone has some relationship with him, whether it's through Kitchen Confidential or they loved his show or they loved that one episode of that one show when he came to their hometown or they were, they remember this one quote he said. It's just like he appealed to people in, on so many different levels that I think everyone found their their inroad with him. I think I feel like every every publication and every person who was writes about this world has kind of offered their take. But has there been any takes that have been different to you, or, or things that you didn't you know expect? Yeah, the one that was the most unexpected, and the one that I feel like I kind of connected with the most, even though I'm not a particularly huge fan of this person's. I, I just don't really have an opinion. But Darren Aronofsky was the co-host of the Bhutan episode of Parts Unknown, which was the last one that aired this season, the season that just ended. And on the occasion of the last episode of the last new season, maybe, of his show, Darren Aronofsky just wrote this essay about what it was like to film that and and how sort of off the cuff it was to travel with, with Anthony Bourdain. And he really just made it sound like Every little piece of the Bourdain mythology that you heard about, like how he doesn't eat in airports and he loves to work with a small team Mm -hmm. and he just is a funny guy and he was somebody who just liked to talk about big ideas and really connect with people. Like in this essay that Darren Aronofsky wrote, it just really kind of made that all seem very clear. Like this was a sort of personality that, you know, maybe if you see it on screen, it was like that in real life. And uh, I think it's like a sweet way to remember the guy and kind of an interesting perspective to see what it was like to go on one of these adventures with them. Yeah, I also think the conversation that it's opened up about mental health has been just huge and and I think maybe one of the silver linings to such a sad event. Oh, completely. And that is is a great point. About a week after the news of Bourdain's death came to light, David Chang recorded... um, an episode of his podcast t- talking about his mental health issues of the past. And I, I do feel like there has been kind of more general conversation about that as it relates to, you know, the, the other interesting thing is that Anthony Bourdain is sort of seen as a chef, even though he hasn't been a chef, he wasn't a chef for like the last almost 20 years, but he's so closely connected with restaurants and the food world that it has sparked this conversation about, mental health in the kitchen and mental health in the restaurant industry. And uh, hopefully this is just the beginning of a much longer conversation. Yeah. Well, Greg, thanks so much for, for helping us. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, Dan. Next up, I have a segment called This Month in Why Yelp Sucks. <laughs> oh, great. All right. Yeah. Uh, hopefully this could be a reoccurring segment. I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to start looking for more Yelp stories. All right. Yeah, what do yeah, we got? Um, all right. Yelp bans this very adorable third grade class from writing restaurant reviews. <laughs> so Yelp, you know, the most democratic restaurant grading platform of all time. Mm-hmm. Why? So this woman, Tara Snyder, she teaches at Boston Teachers Union School in Forest Hills, Massachusetts. Um, she has been doing an exercise where she gets her students to write Yelp reviews for restaurants, and they write really adorable things. This is all according to the the takeout 
Um, for instance, a review like, I just want you guys to know that if you're looking for a place to have fun and eat good food, you should go to my favorite restaurant, Bertucci's. Aww. My favorite is the pepperoni pizza because they give you a full pizza. I also love Bertucci's. <laughs> <laughs> like how cute. Anyway, yeah, Yelp has pulled the plug. Why do you have to be a certain age to on Yelp? Ms. On Miss Snyder's, you do. You have to be 13 or <laughs> or have parental supervision. <laughs> how old are these guys? Well, third grade. I guess they're eight. Oh, yeah, eight. Yeah. Uh, teacher supervision doesn't count? I mean, obviously it's not. Yeah, it's not good enough. That's sad. So, you know, all right, let's fix Yelp for a second. <laughs> yeah. All right. If I'm Yelp and I find these really cute things, I give these these kids a page. I give them a little corner on Yelp, like adorable review section. Why would you ice out they the one thing? They should launch a kid's site. That's what I mean. Yeah, maybe they will. Well, all right, let's trademark it and stuff. What did they um, delete all their reviews? No, they banned them from doing this. They they blocked them all. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. Yeah, well, you know. But I mean, I hate to defend Yelp because I'm not a fan, but you can't have eight-year-olds running amok all over your platform who knows what they'll do especially if there's there's but that's no the real point. like at what time at what point does yelp determine that someone is a responsible enough customer where they are they determine 13 years old okay <laughs> they have their rules maybe they'll be like you can't a new make cult. exceptions instead for of every... bar mitzvah they'll be like you're uh instead of reading the torah you'll write your first you can write your yelp first review. yelp review you're an adult at least writing is yelp review <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so you're fine with that line in the sand but kids are evolving. Kids are kids are growing up a lot faster these days. Eight. What if you go to your Bertucci's, you're reading all the reviews, and then there's this like misspelled <laughs> bullshit thing from an eight year old? I'd be like, what, what platform is this? I don't care what people who are like really trying to glean information from Yelp. I don't care what happens. That's because you don't respect Yelp. If you're putting yourself in the Yelp shoes, right. of course they care about their customers having a good experience. Right, right, right. You don't respect the person who's going to Yelp maybe to they read should, about Bertucci's. Maybe they. I have nothing. I've eaten at Bertucci's many times. Many this times. It's not about Bertucci's. What if they put a little sticker on these diff, on these little you young, and, young with, reviews? You should have a meeting with them about your kid's Yelp idea. It's a fun opportunity to be salty with Yelp. Another <laughs> fun opportunity to be salty with Yelp is when the Golden State Warriors basketball team beat the Houston Rockets basketball team. Uh, the star player on – one of the star players on Golden State, Steph Curry, his wife just opened a restaurant – with Michael Mina in Houston called, what's it called again? International Smoke. Called International Smoke. And super petty, you know, pesky Houston Rockets fans took to Yelp to destroy her restaurant. This is, I think, a bigger commentary on how ridiculous sports fans are. Yeah. Actually. Like such wieners. Take it out on Steph Curry. If you're going to take it out on somebody... Yeah, you but know? if you're going to go, like, if you're going to hit, like, this is hitting pretty hard. I'm not. But then no one's going to be sympathetic to you because you're attacking his wife. Like, that's not fair. No one dislikes Aisha Curry. She's perfect. Yeah. Even if, like. I'm not sympathetic to them at all. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, what a bad strategy. I'm in no way going to defend these people, but you know that Steph Curry, like, Steph Curry was irritated by this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, mission accomplished. That's true. So another serious story, controversial, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the communications director for President Trump, went to a restaurant in Virginia with seven colleagues or uh, staffers and got kicked out 
And it's been this big story for like a week. Yeah. Daniel Janine, what's your take? Well, she tweeted and first she she tweeted it out, which none of this would have happened if she didn't mm-hmm. publicly announce that she wasn't. Well, there was a staffer service. at the restaurant that put it on Facebook too. Yeah. And she also tweeted it out. I don't know. My brain is so filled with everyone else in the world's takes about all, this. You've been reading all the takes? Well, first of all, like let's say what, are you, what has are happened. Are you team since. Danny Meyer, who says you should never kick anybody out for their political beliefs. Yeah. Or are you team Amy McCarthy? Or my team, the rest of who like, wrote an op-ed, Twitter. Wrote an op-ed for Eater saying she's a fascist. She doesn't deserve hospitality. She makes the staffers uncomfortable. Well, I think what's funniest about Danny Meyer's thing is he was clearly like trying to be real safe about this because he was like, what if she was with someone left wing who was trying to convince her of <laughs> what if they were having yeah, what if they were having healthy political debate? <laughs> Obviously, a large group of people have formed outside the Red Hen in Virginia, people on both sides of the political spectrum. Yesterday, someone was arrested for throwing chicken shit. Yeah. At the restaurant. Yeah, that's another side of the story is just like how disgusting our world is that this kind of thing happens and then it becomes this whole in real life actually dangerous situation. And could ruin this woman's business. Although well, there was and all a these big, other red hens yeah. around the country have been getting shit too and they have nothing to do with it. I probably just like take her order and then not do anything with it for a long time. <laughs> just like delay. Just delay it. Just give her terrible service. Yeah, terrible service. I think, like, if we're talking about who's winning this story, I think that the right wing, the right wing, has been more galvanized by this than than the left wing has triumphed at all. Right. I mean, this has happened before. Like, Joe Biden was kicked out of an ice cream shop. Like, right. this happens all the time. It's just in the climate that we're in, it's just everybody's ready to jump on anything. So it becomes this huge story where. People are protesting outside a restaurant now. It's really scary. I mean, seeing the videos of like the the Trump guys surrounding the thing, just yeah, they're all just so disheveled. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my take is I I people have been kicked out of restaurants for less, for way less. Yeah, like restaurateurs can do whatever they want. Like I think it's totally fine. It's just was it the smartest thing to do, knowing the weight that will come crashing down on you after? Like, I just feel bad for that woman. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. It like, definitely I think good wasn't for her good for taking for her a, time. Yeah, good for her for taking a stand and trying to support her employees. But, like, if in 2020s hindsight, would she necessarily do that again? Yeah. But I don't know. I'm risk-averse and scared of people, so. But if everyone was as practical as us, what would the world be? <laughs> I know. There would be no one standing up for anything. No, people no, no, people would just be all sitting in chairs. <laughs> Maybe everyone would be podcasting. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Instead um, of kicking fascists out of their restaurant. You know, if you believe in what they did and you are anywhere near a red hen, go eat at the red hen. Any red hen? Yeah, if you go support red hen. I don't know. <laughs> like, what, what can people do? Yeah. I, just, I don't think yelling on Twitter is is helpful. Yelling on Twitter is definitely not helping anybody. Yeah. Please stop doing that. <laughs> Madame Tussauds. Yeah. The Wax Museum. You're familiar. We. Oui. Uh, is opening a bar in Vegas on top of their museum. <laughs> Do you know what the theme of it is? Isn't it Guy Fieri? No. I wish. Yeah. It's the movie The Hangover. <laughs> <laughs> the 2009 film The Hangover. Yeah. It's a hangover themed bar in a wax museum with Bradley Cooper and Zach Galifianakis. 
Yeah. Why? Why? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories of the month because why the Hangover? It's a ten-year-old movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a ten-year-old movie. Ten-year-old movie. But I think there are still you can't. There are still so many people who go to Vegas, and the first thing they think about is we're, this is our Hangover weekend. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I was actually hoping before we talked about this, I would come up with alternate bars that they should have done. Like, what's like? Here's five better movie bars, but I actually can't think of any. Would you go to a Vegas breakfast institution, like a breakfast at Tiffany's thing? No. What? What do you mean? Like a Madame Tussauds, if it was like a breakfast club. I I don't know. Oh, if it was like a famous other restaurant scene. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. Like Goodfellas or something, like what's yeah, the fa- or what's the Soprano, fa- or sorry, no, or or the Godfather, like gun in the toilet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I would eat at famous restaurants <laughs> from movies. So, why why does this bother you so much? Just because it's a, a dumb <laughs> old bad it movie. It doesn't bother me. It delights me. I just think it's funny that they picked The Hangover out of all the movies in the world. And also, it's not like they hang out at a famous bar. Like the there's no bar scene really. It's no, the about, whole movie happens on like their, a roof. Their hijinks, but. You could recreate a famous bar from a movie, but I think you're right. I didn't think about like. <laughs> okay, I don't how... want to push back because I don't <laughs> want this. I don't want to kill this story. But like, <laughs> you were like, "Hey, Dan, what is a Vegas drinking scene in a movie that when you go to Vegas, if you go to Vegas, you're going to think about? It's probably the Hangover. It's, just a hangover. <laughs> it's probably the Hangover. I can't think of well, anything else. And the other thing they have going for them is like. There were actual celebrities that they probably have the figures of already. <laughs> okay, you think they had Zach <laughs> sitting in the back somewhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bradley Cooper. Sadly, I think that The Hangover One has defined a generation yeah. of Vegas goers. You're right. Like, it's, I it's, bet you that people do the scene in the beginning when they all like take MDMA together. Mm-hmm. I bet you that guys stand around in a circle and recreate that exact thing. <laughs> Would you go to this bar if you were in Vegas? If I was at Madame Tussaud with, and like I had to be there for some reason, nothing would thrill me more than going up to the hangover bar <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty... and getting sloshed with I'm, a Zach Galvanakis. I'm, I'm sold now. Amanda. Dan. We have to talk about the world's 50 best. Do we? Nope. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> so you Perfect. despise the 50 best. I do. And they just, the, the new list, the world's 50 best. The, just came out. Yeah. Everyone's favorite restaurant rankings. Everyone. <laughs> except mine. Except most people. Um, they just came out. And again, we covered them. Um, what, you have anything to say about them? Any surprises? No surprises. Yeah. A lot of your complaints. What have been your chief complaints about the 50 best in the past? Oh, um... One or two complaints, I think. Yeah, the, it's always very, it's expensive, mostly European restaurants run by men, white men. Mm-hmm. That's that's who ends up on the list. Uh, I My big disagreement with it is that it it's not transparent or ethical, the judging of it. It's just like a bunch of these random gastronomes who judge. They can take freebies they don't have to adhere to any rules as to how many restaurants they go to mm-hmm. or how diverse the restaurants are or like what they're doing. They just send in their list of their favorite spots and they can be gamed so easily. Like you can accept PR dinners, you can accept tourism board junkets. Like there's no 
there's no one keeping anybody in line. So mm-hmm. it's it's easy to game if you really want to. Right. There's not even an attempt. No, no. Because the people behind it, they just know that like this is such a juggernaut that they've created. And so, like people yeah. don't care because they want to keep being on the list and it actually drives business and then we all continue to cover it. Yep, yeah, and keep and perpetuate the cycle. Yeah. So one thing that we've noted in the past plenty of times is that there are like two women two female chefs maybe one on the top 50 yeah the women on the list always uh own the restaurants or the chefs with their fathers or brothers or husbands so there's never been a woman who like is the person Mm -hmm. so like elena arzak is an incredible chef uh in spain but her father juan marie is the owner and chef as well so she has to share it with him like even with with the beard awards they this year especially sent out a note to everybody to think about the kinds of restaurants you're including or that you're voting for and not just the diversity of who you're voting for but also the kinds of people you're voting for which took it an extra step Mm -hmm. they also don't let you vote for anything you've had for free so if you took a free meal, you're not allowed to vote for that restaurant. If you have a book deal with a person, you are not allowed to vote for that restaurant. That's not the case with World's 50 Best. It's just a bunch of people submitting their 10, and those people are <coughs> never put on, put on blast at all. No, and the people are anonymous anyway. You, you can't know who they are, except like a lot of them obnoxiously like brag about it and try to solicit free meals by saying that they are a voter or like put it on their Twitter handles. Like, Stop, kind of really? Hinting at it, yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, so it's so dumb. So one of the things that we, you know we've talked about is you don't love that we cover it. I've I've always said that we cover it because people are interested in it, and we want to give the readers what they want, and we want to be able to provide a context. So unlike another publication that might just run the list and be like, "Here it is," we run the list and we say, "Hey, this list is flawed for X, Y, and Z reasons." Here are all these complexities that go into it, but it's a list that drives the industry. So here it is. Um, every year I get less and less comfortable with that justification because we are mm-hmm. powerful enough that maybe we should just be like, fuck you and ignore it. Um, and someone else can have the traffic. Uh, so I don't know. It's something I find that, I don't know, conflicts me a lot. A- after, after everything this year, have you had any thoughts about next year? I don't know. Maybe, maybe next year we won't cover it. I think there would be a lot of opposition within our large team. So it would have to be an ongoing debate. Because people also, people love to cover it. It does big traffic. But people also love to all get their individual shots in on it. Like everyone likes to write their piece where they talk about how crappy it is. You mean on our team? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We like to also be the ones criticizing it. Um, and in order to not cover it, you can't criticize it really, right? You just you could leave just it alone? criticize it. Oh, and never not publish the line. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of having your cake and eating it too, isn't it? I mean, why not? Yeah, we're a food publication after all. No, say like, hey, here's we didn't cover this, but you know, link to Bloomberg or whoever, and then write your piece about why it's bad. Or ignore it completely. Maybe we should try to start a thing amongst a bunch of publications where we don't cover it. Sure. Why not? Let's band together. <laughs> yeah. Create the Museum of Ass Cream. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You don't have to cover everything that's happening. Thank you so much for listening to the Eater Upsell and the best food stories of June. If you love this episode, it would be super sick if you could pass it on to someone you know who likes food, which is everyone. Um, 
The Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York, New York. It is hosted by me, Daniel Janine, and Eater's editor-in-chief, Amanda Clute. We are coming at you next week with an episode all about ice cream. Everything you need to know about ice cream, in fact, or almost everything, in 2018. So stay tuned for that. And until next week. 